From Santa Cruz, California, I'm Gary Shapiro, and this is From the Bookshelf. Thanks so much for joining me. Lara Gabriel is my guest. Her new book is an essential addition to any bookshelf of film history and American popular culture. It's called Captain of Her Soul, The Life of Marion Davies. Laura Gabrielle, welcome to From the Bookshelf. Thank you for having me. Uh, I, I I really love this book. You know, there, there are really only a few actresses of the golden age of Hollywood who, who are still really well known. I mean, Garbo, uh, maybe, uh, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, because they had that television series about them. Uh, but but even you know the biggest stars you know Norma Shera or Kate Francis or Gene Arthur you know they're unless you're a TCM addict people don't really know these these actresses anymore and uh, and I think Marion Davies fits into that category to a certain extent because people know of her because of her connection to Hearst but not anything about her marvelous film career so uh, thank you you know for uncovering Marion Davies the film star. Yes, it was it was a real uh, pleasure for me. She was a joy as a subject because, as you say, she's not one of those stars that has that one big movie. You know, like, for example, Vivian Lee has Gone with the Wind. You can point to Gone with the Wind and people say, oh, that person, right? Vivian Lee. Um, Marion doesn't doesn't have that. Uh, and so I think that she's been allowed in in the culture to um to be uh fit into this this box of an appendage of sorts to Hearst and and it's 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 been a real shame because she was very much her own woman she had a lot of agency over her career and her story is one that needs to be told especially in the the context of of today when we really are giving women back their own uh, their own voices and their own stories, and when you see her on screen and and watch, you know, a few of her movies, one I mean, or even just one, one of the things that strikes me about her is that she's so contemporary. Her she's a very natural actress. Yes, she is. I hear that a lot from people who are seeing her for the first time. They say this this is not a dated performance you watch any of her movies and she's very much uh, herself in every role she plays. I mean, she's, she's a good actress. She's, she's different. She makes every role different, but she always infuses that little bit of herself into, into the performances. And that I think um, shows people that, uh, that, that these, these people from the 1920s and the 1930s were human beings too. I mean, this was, this was, uh, they weren't affected um they didn't have to be affected right and and marion um marion really encompasses that now i was a stutterer when i was a kid oh and, well, interesting and I, yeah and i if you've ever been a stutterer like me even though i can speak without stuttering now there is still stuttering i mean i know what it you know it's right on the verge of coming and that's what I, i've heard yes yeah, so for many people yeah the president of the united states is a okay. as well um and yet you can't you, she never stutters or even stammers in her films how did no. she avoid it how did, how did that happen well it's 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 a combination of factors um as a stutterer yourself you may have experienced this that uh i'm, I'm told that when you recite memorized lines it inhibits stuttering 
Um, you know, when you memorize a text to the point where you can get the breathing down, you can get the choreography down, uh, it makes it less. And Marion had that, um, you know, as a developmental stutterer, she, uh, she had that, um, that, that trait of, of stuttering when you uh, memorize lines and you can get the choreography down and you can say them without stuttering, at least to an extent. And then beyond that, she worked so hard on her lines every night. I have her schedule from, you know, from the 1930s when she was in early, early sound films. She would spend hours and hours and hours and hours on her lines every night. Uh, and getting them down to such a uh, to such a degree that she would be confident uh, to not to not stutter on um, on screen, and she she doesn't she she's completely fluent, completely natural. But if you watch her sound films, her her persona in sound films, the way she carries herself in sound films, is really different from the way she carries herself in silent films. And there's something to be said for, of course, the transition from silence to sound. And of course there was a new way that you had to carry yourself in sound films, but there's something different with Marion. Um, she she seems much more aware of herself in, in sound. And I attribute that to her being aware of her own voice um, and and being always sort of self-conscious about whether or not she was going to stutter, um, even though she she had her lines down. I mean, she she had them so that she didn't even have to worry. And that's a just testament to her hard work. Sometimes she even has some very quick patter in her sound films. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and she stuttered all her life. Uh, and I have her autobiographical tapes where it, it's sometimes she is fluent and then sometimes she really has a hard time mm. and, uh, and and stutters you know once every couple of words so it wasn't something that went away she got over no it. no she it was lifelong and in fact she does she didn't live a very long life i mean by contemporary standards people live much longer now Right. She unfortunately got a pretty awful uh, jaw cancer, very painful, um, pretty devastating. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, um, let's let's talk about some of her films. So uh, in terms of her, her talking films, one of the ones that I love the most is a film called Blondie of the Follies. And I oh. love it because she and Jimmy Durante do this bit where she does this impression of Greta Garbo. And from Grand Hotel. And it's so funny. Not only does she nail Garbo, but the joke that she tells, where she, you know, she says, I want to be alone. And, and he, as John Barrymore says, oh, don't, uh, couldn't I just stay? And, and she says, all right, just for the week then. Right, exactly. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, and, and she was a phenomenal impressionist. I mean, she, you could see it in The Patsy, you see it in The Cardboard Lover, and you see it in, in sound films in Blondie the Follies, where she does this absolutely killer impression of Garbo. Uh, it's, I, I introduced that movie, actually, the other day um, on uh, on Sunday at the UCLA Film and TV Archive. And and uh, when I talked to people afterwards, they said even the way she holds her head 
even the way she holds her head is the way Garbo held her head. She she has her, just, has it down, yeah. Yeah, every every little uh little mannerism that that somebody has, she she picks up on and she does. It's really brilliant. She's very light on her feet. Um, the Patsy, which yeah. was directed by King, she was a dancer. Yeah, she was a dancer, of course. Yeah. I mean, she's, she's the, you were talking about the way she carries herself in silence and and in sound. In that particular silent, she's so um, airy and light on her feet, and it's she's just delightful in that picture. Yes, yes, she is. Um, Blonde of the Follies is really is one of my favorites. I think uh, it's one of her best performances in in a talkie. In it, yeah. Well, in, in any film. Um, yeah. what, do you, what, do you, what would you say if you had to pick her best film? What, what would it be? Uh, it's it's a little bit hard because I would have to go in in categories. Um, Blondie of the Follies, I I think, is certainly one of her best performances in either sound or silent film. Um, and I, I I often say that the Patsy is the best showcase of her talent. Um, the Patsy is a, a film where she gets to one do impressions, as we've talked about before, and two she gets to be this physical comedian. She's so free. She's so free and open, and and she's somersaulting and running and jumping and just doing all this this great stuff. Uh, that one of the things I mentioned in the book is a precursor to screwball comedy. Uh, this the term screwball comedy or screwball comedian didn't exist in 1928. It didn't really come around until the mid-30s with the stuff that Carol Lombard was doing. Uh, and Carol Lombard, when she uh, started, you know, in movies like 20th Century and like like uh, My Man Godfrey and that kind of thing, she was doing the same, uh, she was doing the same thing that Marion Davies did in, in uh, The Patsy. And she took a lot from Marion. They were friends. I mean, they were, they were good friends. And uh, they respected each other's talent immensely. And uh, Carol Lombard was influenced a lot by Marion Davies. And so we could say that Marion Davies is really the matriarch of this certain type of, of comedy. Uh, we have Marion and then Carol Lombard and then Lucille Ball, of course, is influenced by Carol Lombard. And Carol Burnett is influenced by Lucille Ball. So we have this, this sort of line uh, of which Marion is at the head. I think. Yeah, there's a sort of a, I mean, the Patsy in particular has a sort of a sitcom quality, this family dynamic at the beginning right. of the film and, uh, and the way she, um, you know, the, there's situations that she gets herself into in which you can almost predict how she will behave and then she delights you by doing it. Right. <laughs> You're right. Exactly. And she's so free and liberated and that's, you know, going back to the idea of the different persona in in silence and sound films, she was not able to do that in sound film. Um, and I think a lot of it was due to her hesitancy around her speech. Hmm. Yeah. So you were saying you think the Patsy is her best overall film. What about yeah. uh, what about as a dramatic actress? Because she did a lot of just drama and melodrama as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to qualify that because I think that the Patsy is is the best showcase of her talent. Um, it's it's not as good a film as let's say show people mm -hmm. right? which is a masterpiece uh, of uh, of the silent era and i would say beyond that uh it's so show people i think is probably the best film that she has um 
And Blondie the Follies, I think, is probably right right in there, right in there with with show people and, and the Patsy in terms of her performance and and the overall film. Although the overall film is uh it was it was a little bit of a disappointment to some people, namely Frances Marion, right, who had written the story and had a lot of her uh ideas and a lot of the, the facets of the original story cut because Hearst uh didn't didn't like uh, didn't like those facts of the story for Marion Davies. So um, anyway, but I love Blondie the Follies personally. Five and Ten is also a great one. She was really good in pre-codes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Marion was was really uh, she was able to spread her wings in in the pre-codes. Uh, I, I'm a fan of Going Hollywood because I love Ben Crosby. And- oh, boy, going Hollywood. Yeah. She, she has a kind of some wacky numbers in that uh, picture. Pretty nicely, yes. <laughs> um, I, I think they were they would have gone over really well in the 1960s when um, recreational drug use was at its zenith. <laughs> With the, yes, the, I agree. <laughs> flowers and so on. Um, exactly, the waving daisies and the yeah the, the barn with I don't know if you noticed but the barn that has pink pills on the top you know, oh <laughs> yeah so somebody was yeah who knows <laughs> well um, you know like we were saying earlier it's sometimes easy to forget when you're watching old movies from the 20s and 30s that those people are people just like us it just happens to be in black and white yeah exactly and and I think now that we're losing a lot of I mean, I, I can hardly think of anybody who's still around from the from the 20s and 30s who was in movies. Uh, it, it's we have to rely on interviews with them to to remember that these are not myths; these are not legends; these are human beings who had who had problems, right? Who had uh, you know who had to deal with their kids and had to deal with their marriages and and all of that, just like anybody else. Um, it was really important to me to bring Marion Davies down off of a pedestal because uh, because we we have a tendency to forget that, to forget that that these people we see on the screen were people. Um, we were talking with Laura Gabrielle, and she's the author of a new book, uh, which is great, called Captain of Her Soul, The Life of Marion Davies. And um, before we talk about Citizen Kane or any of that. There's another movie. That's the thing. The the movies like Citizen Kane are around and have been around, whereas the movies that Marion herself made are today you can find them, but they were much harder to find for the you know the the years in which Citizen Kane became a legend. Yeah, one of the things that is said about about Marion and Citizen Kane is that she's most associated with a movie that she was never in. <laughs> That's right. And that does not represent her. So I want to ask you about another picture that you mention in your book, which is called The Cat's Meow. It's directed by Peter Bogdanovich, and it was a play, I I believe, as well. Yes. And and it tells a story in which Marion appears and Hearst appears and Charlie Chaplin appears, and in which um, they make it seem, I mean, they clearly show Hearst murdering accidentally Thomas Ince. And um, of course, there's uh, Hollywood Babylon and, <laughs> and all that. Uh, but 
there's absolutely no truth to that. Story. No, no, not at all. Uh, it was a rumor that uh, was started when Thomasins died. He didn't die on the yacht. He died at home. Um, but there was not a whole lot of talk about it. Um, there's not a whole lot of talk about about Thomas Ince's death. And, uh, you know, to make a long story short, I tell I tell the whole the whole situation in the book. But um, Thomas Ince had been sick since 1916, uh, at least. And um, again, to make a long story short, he was cleared to go on this yacht trip. He but he was told not to drink any champagne or eat anything salted. But of course, he had made a toast with champagne and drank salted almonds. Uh, I mean, drank and ate salted almonds. Um, so uh, anyway, he started like vomiting blood and there was a doctor on board. They went ashore again. They, he, then he went home and died at home. But the, um, the fact that there was alcohol on the yacht was really the issue. The, mm. This was prohibition, right? This was the this was the prohibition era, and so the fact that Ince had had liquor on the boat was um, was why they didn't really want to talk about it because it it would have the potential to get somebody into a lot of trouble. Um, and so, of course, when you don't talk about something, then rumors fly, right? So, uh, so the rumors flew and it just spiraled way out of control. And, and that's what happened. Hearst, Hearst would, yeah, he didn't shoot at anything at any time. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you feel that film has uh, any merit in terms of its depiction of the party scene or Marion herself? Any merit? Well, here's what I say about the depiction of Marion and the cat's meow and, and everything else. There has never been an accurate portrayal of Marion Davies on film. And it's not the actress's fault because we have a tendency to say, oh, she was so bad. She didn't do it right. Right. Uh, I think that Kirsten Dunst did do uh, her research. Um, I can see it in certain parts that she did her research. But the fact that um, she was she she was directed by somebody. She had to go by the script. She had to, you know, she had to be. Uh, she 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 her hands were tied in certain ways. So uh, so I, I want to be really clear that I don't blame Kirsten Dunst. I don't blame Amanda Seyfried. I don't blame Virginia Madsen, who did immense amount of research an immense amount of research on Marion Davies uh, for these inaccurate portrayals. It's. Uh, it's just a reality of the industry that, that this is what happens um, when a lot of different factors come together. So, um, so no, I don't think that it was an accurate portrayal of Marion at all. Um, but um, it's an interesting film if we step outside of the uh, fact that it's completely untrue. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's an interesting movie to analyze as a fantasy piece. I think it's, um, you know, if for if the if the real names had been changed, if the real names had been changed and it, and it was a, uh, you know, what if this had happened kind of thing with different names, I think it would be really interesting. Um, but it's it's just too bad that 
that this is what now follows Marion everywhere, follows me everywhere. Right? <laughs> so I get asked this question all the time um, about was there any truth to this? And it's 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 due to the Casmiano and yeah. Well, thank you for clarifying it. Yeah. Uh, of course, Peter Bogdanovich, who directed the film, has a lot of affection for uh, early cinema, his movie Nickelodeon, which I think is exactly what you're saying. There's no real names. It's just a, a what-if kind of piece, I believe. Maybe he used yeah. this, I don't think so. But it's just, a, a, that's a lovely look at the earliest days of, of the cinema. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about, uh, I think the greatest scandal of the 1920s was the Arbuckle scandal. Sure. Uh, Rascal Arbuckle uh, accused of rape, uh, although he was acquitted after several trials. Um, it ruined his career overnight, right. and that was partially due to the Hearst newspapers. Mm-hmm. But then he directed uh, Marion Davies in a film. Yes, yes, it's very. It's it's it's. It would seem to be a paradox, wouldn't it? Uh, he Hearst's San Francisco Examiner was instrumental in bringing Arbuckle down. And it speaks mostly to the character of Hearst um, in some ways. And uh, let me sort of clarify that, too, because Hearst had two sides to him. He had a side that was willing and able to bring somebody down or throw the country into war to sell a paper. that was an absolutely valid part of, of William Randolph Hearst. He was a cruel businessman, could be a cruel businessman. At the same time, um, as a human being, outside of work, he had uh, a softness to him and a, uh, a love for animals. He loved Marion deeply. Um, and so it, it's difficult to pin him down. So with the Arbuckle thing, uh, it, it, this is a this is a prime example of the two sides of Hearst. The um, he was willing to bring him down, and it's almost as if he was unable to remember <laughs> that he did that when he was in a, a private setting. But when Marion, who always asserted Arbuckle's innocence and always thought that this was a, a horrible thing that was that was happening to him. Um, Marion came to Hearst and said, I think that that Arbuckle, that uh, Roscoe Arbuckle, Fatty Arbuckle, should direct the Red Mill. It said that Buster Keaton had come to her and urged her to go to Hearst. Buster Keaton was Fatty Arbuckle's best friend. And so anyway, Marion went to Hearst and Hearst said, oh, yeah, I think that would be a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> And went to uh, went to Arbuckle and said um, said so you know how would you like to how would you like to direct this uh, this this movie, and Arbuckle to his great credit, forgave him, and said yes I'd love to. So there are photos of him at San Simeon. Um, Arbuckle came to San Simeon and and um, you know worked on logistics and and relaxed there and. Uh, so, so he directed the Red Mill and it was great. (laughs) So, uh, so it's, what I, what I always say about Hearst is that entire careers have been devoted to try to understand him. Yes. Yes. And it's, 
everybody kind of comes up short. It's uh, he is talk about a paradox, right? He's he uh, had these two sides to him that didn't mix. And Marion understood him better than anyone. And she loved him. So uh, it's it, it's a tough situation to try to to try to reconcile um, to try to figure out why this happened. Because in order to understand why this happened with Arbuckle and the destru- his the destruction of his career in the papers, and then he goes and directs Marion Davies, you have to understand her, her Hearst, right? So anyway. <laughs> It's, a very, it's very interesting. You know, in your book, uh, Captain of Her Soul, The Life of Marion Davies, there are a couple of sort of totally accepted truths that you um, <laughs> that you shatter in your... Uh, and one of those is that uh, Marion Davies was a chorus girl and Hearst picked her out of the chorus and turned her into a movie star. And that's not exactly true. No, no, not exactly true. Uh, it, it was a lot more organic than that, a lot more natural than that. It, she had been going with a man named Paul Block, who saw in Marion a lot of the um, character traits that were making celebrities, that were making movie stars. This was a new, uh, this was a new phenomenon, the concept of the movie star. And Mary Pickford had this combination of charm and wit and uh, and just uh, general lovableness that Paul Block saw in Marion in, in a lot. So he said she would be great in, in movies. This would be a great career change for her. And so he went initially to Hearst, who had uh, harnessed the power of of uh, the movies in order to initially further his journalistic interests. And then he became sort of a movie mogul in his own right. He went to Hearst and uh, said, look, uh, I would really like to make Marion Davies. uh, I would like to make a movie starring Marion Davies and I need some help. He sort of lacked the artistic artistic, uh, presence of mind to make uh, a movie himself. Um, He went, he went to Hearst and Hearst said, no, he didn't want to do it. Marion Davies was not, uh, it was too much of a risk. He had met her. He had met Marion very casually, very casually at um, uh, Delmonico's in New York, where Paul Block had had meetings and parties and things and first would be there. And he saw Marion and he saw how charming she was. But he, But she at that point was Paul Block's girl. So Hearst said, no, you know, it's too much of a risk for me. So Paul Block made this movie himself. It didn't do terribly well. It wasn't a very good movie. Uh, it's lost, unfortunately, so we can't see it. But this movie called Runaway Romany. And Hearst afterward uh, sort of ribbed Block and said, oh, I hear it's not very good. And glad I didn't take the risk. And, and Paul Block uh, said, well, you should just see it. Just just see the movie. I think you'll... I think you'll think something of of Marion. So he went and he saw the movie and he fell in love with Marion Davies on the screen. So it was her appearance on screen, not on Exactly, stage. which is pretty uh it, it pretty 
<laughs> it's pretty literary, actually. Mm. Uh, pretty literary that he fell in love with Marion Davies on the screen. And after that, he came out of the theater and he said to Paul Block, he was kind of speechless. I, I would like to be formally introduced to her. Um, and so they were formally introduced. Their relationship grew organically. And by 1919, this was 1917, by the way, when they did Runaway Romany. By 1919, they were an established couple. Uh, and he was married technically, although he had been growing apart from his wife for many, many years before he became involved with Marion. Although she had been a chorus girl. She had been a chorus girl, exactly. Millicent, his wife, Millicent and Marion um, had a number of things in common. They were both chorus girls. They both, according to people who knew both of them, they had the same kind of charm, the same kindness and generosity. Um, and so he he had a he definitely had a had a type there, right? Um, he, and uh, but but the the thing about Marion, and this is a question I get I get asked sometimes, why, what is it about Marion that attracted, uh, that attracted her uh, her to him, that that Millicent didn't have? What was it that Millicent didn't have? And Millicent was a um, was a high society woman. She really she really enjoyed uh, the sort of creme de la creme of New York society. She liked being Mrs. Hurst, and uh, it gave her a certain clout in this set. And Marion was a girl of the people. She was, uh, you know, fun, and she liked to get into mischief. And she had grown up, you know, lower middle class in Brooklyn. And she always retained that that sense of uh, of that world. She was she was a girl of people and he and he liked that he didn't like the high society world um so yeah well okay so in in citizen kane the movie that orson wells made in 1941 in which he uh, plays a character based on many people including william randolph Hearst. Exactly. Um, he has a mistress who becomes his wife susan alexander yeah. who wants to be an opera singer Although actually she just is a singer and he wants her to be an opera singer. And then he builds up her career by building her an opera house. And since people associate Marion Davies with Hearst, and so they believed that the actress Marion Davies would never have been a movie star if William Randolph Hearst had not built her an opera house or a, a, a movie studio. Mm -hmm. But your book, says that Marion Davies would have been a movie star. She had the capability, certainly. She had she had the um she had the elements. She had all the elements to be a movie star on her own without Hearst. What I think is important to recognize though is that she maybe didn't really want to be a movie star. She was ne she never considered herself a star. She considered herself an actress. And she was proud of her work and she enjoyed doing it. But I think without Hearst to sort of push her uh, into keeping going with it, she enjoyed it, right? She enjoyed it, but I think she would have retired a lot earlier than she did. She probably mm -hmm. would have retired when sound came in, to be honest. Um, and, uh, and she, um, 
she had the talent, she had the guts, she had everything that was needed to succeed in this world. But she um, she considered it her work. It wasn't like Joan Crawford, for example, right? Joan Crawford is the person that I was sort of contrast marrying with. Joan Crawford was a movie star with a capital M, capital S. She kept her career going. She was a chameleon. She she modified her image to suit the time so she can continue being a star all the way into the 70s. Uh, and Marion didn't have that. She She didn't want that. She wanted to be kind of a normal person. So, so when she retired, she retired, that was it. And, and um, it was a fun time in her life, but it was, it was over. I often wonder if Billy Wilder had come to her in 1950 and said, oh, I've got a great part for you. Uh... Yeah, she was pretty done. She was pretty done. I mean, I, I don't think that she had any desire, any desire to go, to go back into the movies. Uh, she retired in 1937. Yeah. And yeah. And I think if Billy Wilder had come to her in 1950 and said, you know, would you like to do Norma Desmond? She would probably have said no. She could have done a dynamic uh, uh, Gloria Swanson impression for the whole Oh, oh, man. Oh, she did, I mean, she did it all the way through show people. <laughs> she did that Gloria Swanson impression all the way through show people. It was pretty, pretty funny. It's very funny to think of, because we think of impressionists as doing someone's voice, which, of course, Marion could do. But in silent films, she did impressions of other silent film stars and she did them perfectly. Yes, exactly. She had a, I mean, it takes, it takes a certain amount of uh, observational, you know, the, the gift of observation to be able to do that. And I think that she, she, she had, she had a lot of that. She was able to really get to the, to the core of people. And, and that might've been, a part of why and how she was able to be so um, such an empathic, generous person because she was able to sort of read people. We're talking with Laura Gabrielle and her, her book is a biography of the actress Marion Davies. It's called Captain of Her Soul. One of the other myths that you shatter in your book is the famous uh, rosebud um, debacle yeah. which uh apparently uh, now there's a movie called which i'm sure you've seen it's a, it accompanies the blu-ray of citizen kane called the making of citizen kane yeah and it's a it's a wonderful film it's, but i'm sure there's a lot in it that's accurate but in that film and in other places uh, it's said that the thing that really caught hearst's ire about citizen kane was the use of this word rosebud which was his private uh, name for Marion's private parts. It's so silly. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so silly. I mean, they were both so they were both so modest. I mean, they they would never have told anyone about any aspect of their sex life. I mean, there there's just nothing. There's nothing. There's nothing there. So the the idea that that something so private could have made it into Citizen Kane is it's it's ridiculous. Um, but uh, we could we can we can say that there possibly was a rosebud, which was Hearst's mother, right? Mm -hmm. Hearst's mother, um, Phoebe, 
came from a little town that was near Rosebud, Missouri. Oh. Uh, yes, and um, Orrin Peck, uh, who was a good friend of the family's, uh, Orrin Peck used to call her Rosebud. Ah, interesting. So, so that so Rosebud could have caused him anger, I mean, but not for the reason that. I mean, po- yeah, po- possibly. But that has a much more artistic um, connection to Citizen Kane because uh, be, because in Citizen Kane he's torn from his mother's arms uh, and uh, because yeah. of his abusive father or whatever you want to read into the subjects of Kane. Right um, now, that is that's just I, I mean that that's just something to say. I have I have. N- I honestly don't think that Rosebud meant anything. Or- Orson Welles has said that Rosebud didn't mean anything. It was just a plot gimmick. There was no nothing to read into it at, at all. Um, but uh, if somebody were if somebody were going in and just doing a really, really, really deep dive into Hearst and the meaning of Rosebud, I mean that's something that could be pulled up. You know that that uh, his mother was called rosebud by a close family friend could be yeah i mean wells did express regret uh about the portrayal of susan alexander as a parallel to marion because he thought it was unkind to marion david yeah he did but um i i think it's also important to say that there's another figure in history who is much closer to the character susan alexander than marion is who was one of the influences uh on the character but who nobody knows today and that's Ganawalska, right Ganawalska of the famous if anybody listening has been to lotus land right uh that's Ganawalska's garden so um Ganawalska was a uh was an opera singer and by all accounts not a very talented one who uh made her debut in havana and ultimately was taken under the wing of this guy named harold Fowler mccormick who brought her, he was a benefactor of the Chicago Opera. He brought her to Chicago and essentially financed her career with the Chicago Opera. Um, then, uh, you know, and of course she was not very talented, so she didn't have a whole lot of success, but they ended up marrying and then she left him. Um, so that's much closer, right? That's much closer yeah. to to the story of Citizen Kane. Um, but the problem is that nobody knows Harold McCormick and nobody knows Gonawalska. So but and people know Hearst and Marion, so people think that because they they think that Cain is Hearst one hundred percent, they think that Susan Alexander is supposed to be Marion one hundred percent, and that's not the case. Right. Um, so um, obviously, Hearst objected to Citizen Kane, and you know, I guess the stories of him trying to buy the film and destroy it are uh, based in truth. To a certain extent, um, yeah. I mean, I, there were a lot of um, there were a lot of different things that were offered. Um, you know, Louis B. Mayer offered to buy the prints and all all of that. What Marion says in her autobiographical tapes, which I think is is you know somewhat somewhat valid, is that it was more the um, it was more the uh, or I want to say like like the worker bees, you know, the people at the papers who were trying to destroy Citizen Kane. Um, Hearst certainly didn't like it. Um, 
but it was the people at um, at the papers who were really sort of going to bat for him, um, you know, for the for the chief. So, so that's what Marion said about Citizen Kane in her um, in her take. She was she was asked about it, and she said, um, you know, she said, "Oh, what was your the, the person who was helping her do her tapes asked her." Uh, you know, what, what did you think about it? Did you try to do anything about it? And she said, you know, who am I to tell Orson Welles how to make his movie? Uh, and so she just sort of let it roll off her back. She, she said, if it's a good movie, I'd like to see it. If it's not good, you know, I, I, don't, I don't need to see it. So um, very professional. Now, um, you had access to her tapes that Mary Davies recorded for her autobiography. Yes. And you, you listened to them, I imagine, mm-hmm. over and yes. over. over and over and over. It's pretty much memorized him at this point. Yeah, that's that's amazing. How did you get access to these tapes? Um, it was through a contact of mine um, who in turn had a contact at Wesleyan University where the actual physical media is. Uh, and so I have uh, digital digital copies of, of these tapes. And uh, it, it's a long story. There are certain, some tapes that are missing, right? Some autobiographical tapes that are that are just gone. And so I was not able to hear those, but there is a full transcript that exists, exists of all of the autobiographical tapes. Um, and so whenever the, the tapes that I have are really badly deteriorated, um, you know, the, the copies that I have are really badly deteriorated. So it's sometimes difficult to hear what she is saying, but I, you know, uh, through years and years and years of, of listening, I, I can understand it pretty perfectly now. Um, but um, um, whenever I was not able to discern a word, you know, on that she says on the on the tapes, I would go to the full transcript and I would look to, at at the the word. But mostly when I when I referenced the tapes in my book. I used my own transcript. I, I made my own transcript of the tapes. So um, that's what I used first. Then I went to the um, to the transcript, the other transcript that exists, the full transcript of all the tapes. And then um, and then to the times we had, if I still was not able to get, if it was that same word was inaudible to the transcriber. The times we had being the name of the autobiography published under the name of Marion Davies. Right. And it's not it's not really a memoir or autobiography. It's a posthumous cut and paste of her autobiographical tapes. Uh, and what they what the editors did, the, the tapes were ultimately abandoned. They were supposed to be made into an autobiography. They stopped the project. Um, and after Marion's death, these two editors came together took the the tapes and made uh, sort of what Marion's autobiography might have looked like if they had finished it. So it's not terribly um, good as a resource because they take something from tape one, something from tape six, and they put them together. Mm-hmm. So you don't really get Marion's actual thoughts and what she's saying. And the tapes are a conversation and they're not, you know, chronological or anything. So, um, so it's not, it's not really accurately called a memoir, but that's what it's been. Well, that's 
what makes your book so great. And Thank it's you. it's really a wonderful uh not only is it a, a wonderful um biography of Marion Davies and how she really comes alive on the page, but it's an extremely well written and, and wonderful read. And one once again, it's called The Captain of Her Soul, The Life of Marion Davies. And the author, my guest Lara Gabrielle, thank you so much for spending some time with us on From the Bookshelf. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. Joining me now is artist Robin Smith. She's an educator as well as an artist. She was formerly ran the art department at Monterey Peninsula College. She's retired from that position and now works out of her own studio, Blue Mouse Studios in Santa Cruz. And she is the founder of a thing called Print Day in May. And I asked her to join us here to talk all about it. Robin Smith, welcome to From the Bookshelf. Thank you, Gary. So, Robin... What is the story, what is the origin story of Print Day in May? Print Day in May was founded 16 years ago as sort of an activity amongst a bunch of printmakers at Monterey Peninsula College. A number of these artists who had been students at MPC had gone their own ways. They were working on presses themselves. They had bought their own presses, and we wanted to keep contact. So we decided that in 2007, on a particular Saturday in May, we would all just print from wherever we were, because we all love doing it, and send good vibes into the world, Mm -hmm. and call each other on the phone and take pictures. It was long before social media was really a big deal. So our communication was literally, you know, dial up the phone and say, hey, Evelyn, how you doing? Oh, I'm printing. Yeah, me too. And we decided to do it on the first Saturday in May because that was the day of the Kentucky Derby. So those off campus could drink their mint juleps and those of us on campus could wish we were drinking mint juleps. (laughs) So that's kind of the origin. Excuse me. But what happened eventually was we had so much fun that we kept doing it year after year, and we kept asking people to join us, visiting artists who had come into the program, um, friends of friends, and pretty soon it was really a mushrooming idea, and we started setting goals like, hey, could we get artists from all 50 states to join us? Uh, Eventually, yes, we could. Could we get... 10 different countries? Well, yes, we can do that too. So we kept doing it. And in 2015, we got penguin footprints sent to us from Antarctica, which meant that we had all seven continents involved. Wow. Yeah, we also began getting sponsors. So places like Cranfield Colors in Wales and McLean's Art Supplies in Oregon they started donating prizes and really what happened was we became a huge presence on social media we made a website people started posting everything you know all the stuff that they made on that day and then they could hashtag these sponsors and the sponsors could select winners after the the fact 
So that was a big deal because that allowed us to essentially get advertising for getting people involved through the sponsors. And then the sponsors got access to a whole bunch of printmakers who wanted to use their products. So that was a, a win-win situation and, and made us quite a large event. So how many people do you think participate in Print Day in May now? Well, it's really hard to know. We have a few thousand people that are registered for the event on our website, about 2,500, 3,000 people. But you can participate just by making prints and then hopefully by posting them on our uh, social media sites. So by conservative estimate, we have maybe 40 or 50,000 people wow. every year that participate in this event. And tell us a little bit about, I mean, if I wanted to participate in Print Day in May, do I have to be a well-known printmaker? Do I have to have a press and a studio and all those things? No, not at all. We really look at printmaking as transferring a mark from one surface to another surface. And so you can be an ace lithographer, you can be working at Crown Point Press on that day, or you can uh, drink a margarita and leave a lipstick mark on the glass. You can make... <laughs> oh, you could be a penguin leaving footprints. Exactly. Or you yourself could make a footprint in the sand or have your dog walk across a piece of paper on the floor. Uh, these days, when it's if it's still raining in May, God forbid, you could have your dog walk in from the outside and shake herself off and walk across your cement floor and take a photograph of her paw prints and upload them to our site. And there is a print. And then, of course, anything in between. Recently, I saw a fellow down at the beach and our, our local artist, I don't remember his name, and he was making art on the sand. Oh, Brighton Denovan, yes. Is that printmaking? Well, it could be. Uh, I mean, certainly his footprints, as he goes and makes his marks, are he is really intending um, for his pieces to be drawings rather than transferring one mark to another surface. It's really that sand surface that he is marking. So it's really more of a sand drawing than a sand print. Mm. So um, when, what about you? What kind of printmaking do you do? I work in a lot of different arenas of printmaking. I do a lot of monotype printmaking, which is literally just painting on a piece of plexiglass or glass and transferring that image to a piece of paper. Uh, or other surface. You can transfer the image to fabric or anything else. So I do a lot of monotype, monoprint, which is very similar. I do collagraph, which is a very textural kind of print. Let me go back. What is the difference between monotype and monoprint? Monoprint is when you have something on that plate surface, a scratch or a raised area or something that is permanent on that plate that transfers every single time you use that plate so that the prints that come from that plate all have something in common. If it's a mark, if you make marks that completely are erased, that leave the, the plate intact, 
that is a monotype. So they're similar. Okay. I also use a, I do a lot of etching. I do some copper etching, but mostly I use the sun and do solar plate etching. I do woodcut and lino cut. And then, of course, combinations of all of those things. We're talking with Robin Smith, and she's the founder of Print Day in May, which is celebrating its Sweet 16. Sweet 16, that's uh, right. On May the 6th, Saturday, May the 6th, and uh, all of you listening can participate. Robin Smith, tell me again, uh, uh, a little bit more detail. You said collagraph. Was that one of the things you said? Collagraph is a plate that is essentially a collage so that you're using actual textures and gluing them down. When I say a plate, it's really any kind of surface that won't break. So it could be cardboard, it could be styrene, it could be plexiglass, whatever it is, could be metal. But um, you are collaging onto that surface a permanent textural pattern or image that gets transferred to paper when you print it. And so it can be printed in a number of ways, but it is known as sort of the textural print. It tends to leave a, a very beautiful visual texture, which can be an actual texture with enough pressure on the press because it can emboss the paper. And what is a solar plate? A solar plate is a brand name for what is known as a uh, photo plate. Um, so... In a photo plate, like a photo etching, what happens is, it's a, a photopolymer, there is a, um, a, a plate that is photosensitive. It has a photosensitive emulsion on it. And then as you block the light in various ways, the plate is affected in various ways. So if you block the light in a, in a certain spot on the plate, Light cannot get through, so if you put it in the sun or if you put it on an exposure unit, uh, then what happens is the emulsion remains soft because that emulsion hardens with sunlight or with UV light. So once you expose that plate to light and then you run it under water to develop it, any areas that have not been touched by light will wash away and areas that have been hardened will remain. So you get a multi-level plate to print off of depending upon its exposure to light. Who are some in history, what artists uh, were printmakers or famous names that we would know? Well, Degas did, he was really the first, Edgar Degas was really the first printmaker to do a lot of, or the first painter to do a lot of monotypes. Many painters see what happens on their palette, on their glass palettes, is really beautiful. And just taking a piece of paper onto your palette and printing off of it is a way of printing. And Degas made use of that glass palette quite a bit. So he has some really quite amazing monotypes um, let's see, well, Whistler made some beautiful prints. Hmm. Um, more contemporarily, Chuck Close was a great printmaker. Many of the really great painters in history since Degas have also made prints. So there are artists who are really primarily known as printmakers, but most of the best-known artists 
are painters as well. Painting has always been more valued in our culture than printmaking. I think because originally printmaking was used to create multiples, affordable work, uh, you know, duplications, reproductions, reproductions. Uh-huh. But that is not the kind of printmaking that we here at Print Print A and May do. We do not go down to a Xerox machine and make a print of something. We do handmade, generally one of a kind prints. Now, an addition is a series of prints from one matrix that are identical or some or at least related, but they're still pulled by hand from a plate that is worked by hand. So printmakers are really very involved with their materials, just like painters, sculptors, ceramists, and we are innovators. We use a lot of digital uh, techniques in making our work. We, Anytime there's a machine that can take a mark from one surface to another, you're going to see some printmaker trying to make that work for his or her you know, vision. So... Um, Really, printmaking is not solely about reproduction at all. Well, Robin Smith, if I don't have a penguin or a press, what else can I use to make a print? You can print by hand. Well, do you remember doing potato prints when you were in... uh... Oh, you mean where you cut the potato in half and make a little design on it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And dip it in ink. Exactly. Um, You can make prints from almost any vegetable... You can use uh, rubber stamps as a form of printmaking. You can use your hand, dip your hand in some kind of colorant, put it on a surface, put a piece of paper on that surface, rub your hand over the back, lift it off, and you get a print. So the question is, why make a print? Why is that different from just drawing? And the question, the, the really the answer to that is magic. There is something that happens in the translation between one surface and the next that you as a printmaker can influence, but it is not just you. It is that act of moving that image from one or that mark from one surface to another. Something happens in the pressure, in the transference that is surprising that is addicting and it just keeps us coming back and making more prints so it's may the 6th print day in may and they can find more information at printdayinmay.com printdayinmay.com we're also on instagram print day in may uh, facebook you can join our print day in may printmakers group on facebook But the best thing to do is go to our website and get all the information. This year, we are asking for your birthday wishes, your Sweet 16 greetings to us. So send us a Sweet 16 greeting, and you'll be in the running for prizes. More information about that is on the website. And we just want to spread the word. Well, Robin Smith, thanks so much for spreading the word here on From the Bookshelf. Thank you. That's it for this week's From the Bookshelf. I hope you enjoyed the program and will come back and see us again next time. I'm Gary Shapiro. Take care. See you soon.